Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. It's 40 years since the World Championship moved to the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield, and I've gathered the big guns of snooker scene, the editor Clive Everton and chief reporter Phil Yates, to reminisce. So, 40 years of the Crucible, but of course uh, the World Championship was going a long time before then, started in 1927, and into the 70s, Clive, had various venues, and I think they illustrated the need for a permanent venue, which of course became the Crucible. Well, they certainly did. Uh, the 1972 final, for instance, the first time that Alex Higgins won it, was played in Sully Park, British Legion, and the, the tiered seating was very primitive, upturned beer crates, that kind of thing, uh, completely inadequate toilet facilities, completely inadequate lighting, completely inadequate everything, <laughs> really. <laughs> but uh, uh, we were all transfixed by the play. Um, and uh, particularly that, that of Higgins, and uh, at least it did serve one useful purpose, and it, it attracted outside interest, and the 73 World Championship was at least professionally promoted at City Exhibition Halls in Manchester, and then Bellevue 74. Uh, Eddie Charlton promoted the 75 Championship, which was shambolic in its own way. <laughs> uh, uh, 76 was split between two venues, Middlesbrough and Withenshaw Forum, which is a complete shambles. <laughs> uh, and then in 77, mercifully, we went to the Crucible. Mm. So, first year there, um, I mean, everyone always says, even now, oh, it's so small, I can't believe how small it was. It was only just big enough, wasn't it, to actually get the two tables in? Uh, I- indeed. I-, I think it was only a matter of a couple of feet. Um, uh, but... Uh, Thank, good, thank goodness it, it, was, it was just big enough. Mm. Um, in 77, of course, the television only started at the semi-final stage, so uh, Ted Lowe did, did the, whole, the whole of the, uh, the commentary. 78, uh, they went to covering the whole of the championship on both tables, recording every ball of every, of every frame. Um, and of course, the rest we know. Mm. And Phil, you you were a callow youth in, in those days, but you you went to watch. 
I went to watch. I went to <coughs> Silly Park British Legion for one session in 72 um, when I was very young. Um, one session, obviously, of, of, of the final because it wasn't a tournament. Went in 73, 74, and then I went again in 77, uh, saw John Spencer play a match. And then 78 onwards, my first crucible actually working uh, up there as a journalist was 1989, and I thought it was very, very easy because I drove back with Clive after the final when Steve Davis beat John Parrott 18 mm. 3, and it was still light. <laughs> yes, yes, well, it had not happened since. But um, so, the f- so the first year you went to spectator, because as you said, you'd been before, w- did you feel, it's easy to sort of romanticise about the crucible, but did you feel actually there is something special about this venue? Very much so, yes. I've been to the Masters at uh, Wembley as well. Um, not before the, 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 the first Crucible I went to, obviously, but I, I, I went to the Masters around that time, and Wembley was fantastic, but the Crucible was... It definitely got a unique atmosphere. To be honest, because I hadn't got a great frame of reference, it didn't seem to me to be particularly small. Mm. Um, but on one occasion, I also remember sitting behind uh, Graham Miles' chair when he was playing Perry Manns, and Manns were knocking them in off the, off the lampshades, and I was pretty much having a conversation with Graham and myself and a couple of other people, you know, between frames. And it just seemed so intimate then Mm. because, you know, it was one of those things where the crowd could get so close. The actual size of the venue never really dawned on me, but the closeness the crowd got to the table, that was extraordinary. I mean, nothing like it anywhere else. Mm. It's a bit different for me because I grew up watching The Crucible and um, the first time I went there was 1990 uh, and I did sort of, think wow this is just ridiculously small the first match I saw was John Virgo against Gary Wilkinson but, but it didn't put me off a career in snooker um, so Clive the early days obviously it, it was sort of it was on TV on Pop Black and the highlights here and there but it was nowhere near as big as it became so what was the sort of press contingent like I imagine it was pretty small probably you and a couple of others well to, to start with mm. yes uh, myself and Janice Hale who, who, who was assistant editor of the snooker scene very regrettably died last year. We were, we were the press corps, but mm. uh, we, we uh, gradually acquired a, a, a few more. In fact, uh, when Snooker got into the, into the 80s, pretty much, every uh, national newspaper had its own correspondent, mm. few of whom knew anything about Snooker. <laughs> and, and many of whom liked to drink, because, of course, that was a thing people maybe don't understand. In the days of sort of embassy, there was a free bar in the press room, and obviously cigarettes were handed out like candy. It was uh, kind of stuff that just c- kind of couldn't happen now. It was the, the Sodom and Gomorrah <laughs> of the Fourth Estate, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was extraordinary, really. I mean, I remember going home uh, from the Embassy Championships back to your hotel room, and then the next morning you, you get your work bag where you got your, your pads and your research and all that kind of stuff, and absolutely stunk of smoke. It was... Extraordinary. You didn't realise it at the time, but the following morning you certainly did. Oh, yeah, the press were looked after royally. And Clive's right. I mean, when I started my first championship in 89, every single newspaper had got their own snooker correspondent. And uh, it was a really big deal uh, in in the national press. Um, And now our viewing figures are fantastic Mm. still. And yet you hardly get a word in the papers. Maybe they should bring back the free bar. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, this is hard hard to say, really. But when did the Crucible sort of become the Crucible, as it were? When was it the case that people thought, OK, we actually can't leave here. Was it when, into the 80s, when it became so big on TV? I, I, think, I think it was. It was, it was pretty early in the piece, really. I, I remember thinking, even in 77, the first year, I thought, this is marvellous, this is, this is ideal uh, for snooker. Uh, so I, I, th- I, think, I think pretty early on, the Crucible had a special ambiance. Mm. 
Phil, would you concur? Absolutely. I mean, I agree with the vast majority of decisions that Barry Hearn makes, and I'm absolutely with him in the sense that he needs to keep snooker at the crucible. Obviously, it's got commercial disadvantages because you're limited to the number of people you can get in there. Certainly, in terms of hospitality, you're limited. But the game hasn't got a great amount of history, you know, and what you have got, you need to preserve. Absolutely. Well, we'll, we'll touch on some of the... I mean, there'll be a lot of talk in the 40th anniversary of some of the great moments, but um, but there were a lot of great moments. And one of them was uh, 1983, Cliff Thorburn made his 147. But, of course, that match ended up being the latest ever finish. He played Terry Griffiths. And long, long after the maximum, there they were battling away until the early hours, nine minutes to four, Clive. And you, you, you can claim to have been there. You were there to the bitter end. I, I, I was indeed. <laughs> I, and, and I went to the press conference afterwards mm. as well and saw um, the sunrise over Sheffield, mm. which is... Uh, uh, a distinction few can claim. Absolutely. But so, so what was it like in the arena? Because TV had stopped, hadn't it? You know, the camera, they couldn't afford to pay the cameraman anymore, so there was no coverage. So it must have been quite a sort of eerie atmosphere. E- extremely eerie. Mm. But, but what was amazing was that at least, at least 100 people uh, remained in, in, in the arena. Presumably people with their own transport because, <laughs> because the, the buses and trains mm. had long since running. Mm. And, and, and what, were, what were the players like in terms of the standard of play at the end? I mean, those, those two were hard men, we know that, Cliff and Terry, but ultimately it's nearly four in the morning. made no difference right. to the standard of play, right. none whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about Thorburn, who, who, who in, in his days playing for money, uh, travelling across all, all the way across Canada and North America, he would play 24, even 36 hours. Mm. I, I think he, sometimes he, he took something stronger than coffee, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he was used to it. Yeah. 85, of course, we, we must touch on. I mean, you almost feel like there's nothing left to say about that. But one, one person who I think is worth mentioning is David Vine, who I think had a horrible task at the end of it, because those arena interviews, they can be quite awkward anyway. But Steve Davis, one of the great champions, was always going to be a bad loser. It's very hard to know what to... What do you say to him? Well, Varney was a giant, let's mm. face it. Um, professionally phenomenal. And before that, he elicited one of the great quotes of the Crucible <coughs> when Terry Griffiths mm. joyously said, I'm in the final now, you know. Yeah. That was a, a great moment. And then, of course, 85 came across and putting myself in, in Varney's shoes, he must have been a little worried as to how Steve was going to react. In fact, he reacted wonderfully, didn't he, by saying it was all there in mm. black and white. But, yeah, it wasn't just the players who made the Crucible. People like David Vine, Clive and others who were involved in the, in the television, that's what made it. Mm. It wasn't just the players. So what was it like for you, because you were a league player and obviously a snooker fan, when you started working there, you sort of walk into this, into this world. What, what was that like? I was... Well, I shed a tear the first day, actually. I couldn't, I couldn't quite believe it, I, I, because it was only just after my father had died, and he loved it, and he'd take me to the Crucible, and I couldn't quite believe that I was actually there working, and I know, I know he would have been extremely proud. Um, so that, that, was, that was great for me, but then you sort of become... You, you switch off, you, be, you stop being a fan, and you become um, a journalist, and there is obviously a, a very big difference, and then you just get on with it. The first year, as I say, I hadn't got that much on, you know, I was very much a junior, and... It was just sort of feeling my way in, but sort of four or five years in when we got the Radio 5 contract. I mean, those 17 days, the hardest <laughs> I've ever worked in my life for about 10 years in the middle there. 
I just don't know how to do it. In fact, my last few crucibles, I worked so hard that my back went, and, you know, at the end I was sort of... Yeah, I, was, I was just in bits. Um, but that's I, the thing also, I mean, it was pre-internet, so in, the, in those early days, so you had to phone the people, the young people maybe don't understand this, but you had to phone the copy and you had to read your story over the phone, which took a long time. Well, Clive, you'll tell the story about <coughs> Sully Park in 72 when you used a public phone. Well, yes. It, that was it, definitely pre-internet. <laughs> well, it, what's more, it was a public phone without a light initial, which was, which was not good for evening sessions. Yes, yes. My, my worst Crucible memory actually wasn't at the Crucible, when Peter Francisco was, was banned uh, for what he did at the Crucible uh, against Jimmy White. Um, they had the, the hearing at um, Manchester Airport in a hotel there, and Sky News wanted me to ring them and tell them what had happened on air as soon as the verdict came. And obviously, Peter Francisco was banned, so it was a big story. So I've gone into this um, telephone booth, again, pre-mobiles, um, uh, when the story broke. And I'm live on with, I think it was Chris Scudder. And uh, I'm, I'm starting you can't to... can't be here today, but yeah. anyway, yeah, we'll start... take your word for it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm live on Sky News, starting to my spiel, and it's quite a, a sensitive thing. You don't want to say the wrong thing. So I'm, I'm starting to my spiel, and all of a sudden this woman knocked on the door. How long are you going to be in that booth? <laughs> <laughs> I need the phone. You know, I was live on Sky So, yeah, so the, the, the facilities were quite, quite rudimentary in many respects, and the worst of the lot was when the WPBSA, in their great wisdom, decided to only book the phone lines for 17 days. So the actual book, uh, the, the booking finished yeah. at midnight yeah. on the night of the final, <laughs> and of course the final finished well after that, so we were all, we were all scrambling to yeah. get our copy over with no internet. But you mentioned Francisco, and I guess, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of controversies in snooker, but when they happen at the World Championship, they are multiplied, aren't they? They have become like the biggest thing ever, and of course you were both there when Alex Higgins retired, in inverted commas, in 1990. What was that like? I mean, we should say, before he sat down at the press conference, he assaulted an official. I was the only one of the press that saw it. Basically, yeah. I've always been a worrier and a fretter, and I was on deadline, and... I kept looking, where, where is he, where is he? You know, we, I needed the quotes, basically. And everyone, as you know, in that, in that very small interview room where you've got breeze blocks and all that kind of <coughs> stuff, everyone's looking forward to the plinth at the top. Everyone was looking that way. So I'm sort of, where is he, where is he? And I, just as I look round, he walked in, and Colin Randall, who was one of the nicest guys you could ever wish to meet, the press officer at the time, went, come on, Alex, you know. And he's gone, whack, in the stomach. And then walked straight in. Mm. So none of the other guys see it, you know. So then he starts his press conference, which is infamous. Yes. So I come out of the press conference straight on the phone. Alex Higgins faces uh, you know, a lengthy banner after assaulting uh, the press officer, Bob. And one of the other guys heard me. He said, what do you mean? And, I said, and he couldn't believe that he hadn't seen it but uh, because it was right there. As if the press conference itself wasn't enough. Exactly. that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I guess, Clive, that attracted a lot of news reporters to the, to the Crucible as well. What was it like, the sort of relationship between people who were there to cover the snooker and people who were there to cover the aggro. Well, uh, it, it was it was okay, it was okay really. Um, I think that the um, the, the snooker journos recognised that the news journos had got a job to do, and, and in many cases they had, they helped them. Mm. In terms of commentary, obviously, you know, there were long days. You'd normally do sort of two sessions a day, do you, and, and also you were doing the radio in between. You were doing the garden in between. I mean, they, like Phil said, there were long days, and there were seventeen days of it as well. Uh, uh, looking back, I can't think how. I, however, I did it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I did, as you say, two sessions of, 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 of commentary. Um, we had the Radio Five contract as well, which was on the hour every hour. Uh, and if I was in the box 
uh, Phil did it. And on top of that, two stories for The Guardian, mm. one for first edition and one uh, a rewrite last thing at night, mm. which, was, which was delightful at that hour. <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because the journalists, uh, like most people, when the play stops, they just go. But the journalists, it's still the same now. They're there for another hour, maybe an hour and a half, do, doing their work. Well, we, we were talking about this uh, quite recently during the World Grand Prix at Preston Guildhall, I remember a UK championship there where myself and Trevor Baxter had quite a few orders to do at, at the end of play. And we went to leave the, uh, the press room and we were locked in. <laughs> locked in. They thought, yeah. you know, they didn't realise anyone was in there. It was probably an hour and a half after play, maybe even two hours after play had finished. Mm. You never got there at the Crucible, but yeah, some really late nights there. And you woke up some mornings, you think, as Clive's just said, how do I get through this? <laughs> That's somehow you always did. Yeah, but also, it was, and it, it's kind of the same now, but particularly then, I think sort of pre-internet as well, it was complete bubble away from anything else that was happening in the world. Kind of wasn't happening, was it? You were just mm. sort of, it was like locked in sort of syndrome in a way. You were just there and it was snooker every day, all day. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and <laughs> something big in the world always seemed to happen when we were there. I don't know. I mean, maybe it was just, you know, you, you, your sense of, of news is sort of heightened by, by where you are and what you're doing. But yeah, it was tumultuous times and I must be honest, people say, because obviously, you know, I'm not involved to that extent now, and people say, do you miss it? And, and I can genuinely say, honestly, I miss being at the Crucible. Yeah, of course I do. I miss seeing the games, but I don't miss the workload. That was just a bit too much, I think. Yeah, because there's a lot of pressure to actually, obviously, deliver stories, get it right, and when you're doing lots of things, there's not time, actually, to sort of perfect your prose, is there? You've just got to sort of bash it out. Well, I remember, I remember very frequently uh, I didn't have time to actually write uh, uh, something for the, for the Guardian. I just scribbled a few notes and, and I'd lived it over the phone to, to a, a delightful or not so delightful copy taker. Mm. The 1980s obviously were dominated by Steve Davis and the 1990s by Stephen Hendry. And it was a surprise if they didn't at least get to the final and unusually win it. Now... It's much more open. You know, you can make a case for lots of different players because there's so many tournaments and a lot of people are sharp and there's, there's no real one obvious favourite. I mean, Ronnie O'Sullivan would be favourite, but he's not the favourite to the extent that Davies and Hendry were. Was it better then when there was, like, one guy to be shot at or is it better now that it's kind of basically there for the taking? I think it's better now. Mm. Uh, more, more variables. Uh, simply that. Right. Historically, I think individual sports have tended to boom when there's a, a dominant figure or two or three dominant figures certainly tennis is a classic example of the two or three, four, maybe four with golf, golf definitely boomed with Palmer, then Nicholas and particularly with Tiger Woods and snooker undoubtedly boomed with Davis and then Hendry but it's booking the trend now it's so open, it's more open than it's ever been we were talking over breakfast this morning actually about who would win the world championship and there are so many candidates I actually said on a commentary recently that I think nowadays there are more than 16 top 16 players, if you know what I mean. There are 25 who are legitimate top 16 players. I wouldn't say there are 25 realistic contenders for the world title, but certainly it goes well into double figures, and we've never had that before. Oh. What was... Uh, what was Because uh, we look at Steve Davis now, and he's sort of this, this obviously legend of the game and, and very chilled out on the BBC and so on. 
What was he like as a person in his prime? Because a lot of other players said you, that he would just basically not speak to them and not, not associate himself with them and keep himself apart. Was that, was that how he sort of got to the top? Well, actually, Steve used to spend a, a, a lot of time in the press room mm. in, 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 his, in his off moments. The understanding was that we, we didn't ask him anything about snooker, mm. but uh, he was very affable on other subjects, mm. playing chess with someone or... He uh, was, was quite sociable, but you didn't talk about snooker. Right. At the World Grand Prix last month, I'm in the commentary box with Stephen Hendry. He sees up in the back row two players, Joe Perry and someone else, who were playing each other the next day, I think it was. Anyway, you don't do that. <laughs> you, don't, you, you don't do that. I wouldn't do that in my day. You know, he would keep a mile away from the yeah. guy he was playing. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's the thing. I mean, Hendry come in the pressure as well. I think one of the reasons was you go in the players' room. It's not so much the players, it's their guests. They want pictures, they want autographs. Um, he doesn't want that. He wants to be in his mindset, prepared for the match, and coming into the press room, spending time with journalists he's been with all season so he can trust them. It's actually a little refuge. Yeah, and of course, the opposite of that was Mark Williams, mm. who, before he won his second world title, literally before he went out, was sharing a joke with us. Literally, they called him and he said, hold on a minute, I've just got to give you the punch. He told us the punchline, then off he went and played the final. <laughs> you know, so each to their own, but definitely there's been a lot of interaction between players and, and the press and I think it's, it's rather unique. I think the bond we've got is one we should be proud of. Mm. We should, except there isn't quite enough press now to have interaction with. We need a few more. Well, well let's talk about the way the media's changed because obviously... The press coverage has, has fallen away dramatically, actually. Um, people get excited about the World Championship. But I mean, if anyone's been to the Crucible, they'll see the, like, the press cuttings on the wall. They used to sort of snake down the corridor, didn't they, and back again. But now, there's quite a few, but it's nowhere near what it was. What, what are the reasons for that? Is it, is it because football's taken over so much? Is it just that the media have just lost interest in snooker, for whatever reason? I think it's cultural snobbery right. on, 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 part of, on the part of the media. Uh, which is made worse by the fact that budgets have been cut at all sports departments uh, and they look, well, what can we do without? Oh yes, I know, snooker. Mm. But the amount of press coverage on snooker, when I say press coverage, I mean mainstream newspaper coverage, is the worst of any sport in relation to the viewing figures it gets. I mean, you know from personal experience, you're a sports doing fantastically yeah. well. Myself and Clive know that ITV, the, the viewing figures are up and they're really, really delighted. We know BBC is producing great figures as well. And yet the, the newspaper coverage does not reflect that in the slightest. Now, that's their loss, not ours. Yeah. It's, it's some of the people who come now, uh, it's more international, I think, now. And there was a guy there, I'm not sure where he's from, but it was his first time at the Crucible last year. And Alan McManus was just sat at the front, just having a cup of coffee, minding his own business. And he came in, this guy, and he said, actually, sorry, I was out there. So, OK, no problem. So Alan moved to the seat next, next door. And this guy said to him, clearly was not necessarily a big snooker man, because he said to him, who are you writing for? And Alan <laughs> had to sort of explain, well, I'm actually, you know, I, I'm, I'm playing in the tournament. He could have said, by the way, I've been in two semi-finals here before, but he, he didn't. But, but I think that, that it, we've seen a lot of Chinese press come over. So it's become a little bit more international. But there's still that concern that the British media don't sort of understand what a big deal this tournament is. I remember when the twilight came over and someone said he's going to snow today. And he went, when? <laughs> I thought we could tell by the minute when he was going to come in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the Chinese media and the stuff they write on each match, it's like literally a ball-by-ball commentary. It's yeah. a, we, we used to think, you know, a, a thousand-word piece was sort of really hard work. I mean, they're probably writing 10,000 words. It, it's extraordinary. And, and, and 
the interest isn't just in Ding and Liang and the other Chinese players. It's in the in the championship as a whole. Mm. Talking about China, there's all this talk over these years about building a replica crucible. Yes. Um, and, you know, great, good luck to them. If they build one, fantastic. But there's a parallel in golf, you know. There's a place called Tour 18 uh, at two or three locations in the United States where they basically recreate famous holes from each golf course, the 12th of Augusta, things like that. And, yeah, it's great, but not the same, never will be the same, and nothing will ever replicate the Crucible. No, because in China, the, the, the talk is, and Jason Ferguson showed me sort of the, the plans for it, uh, but it's like the Crucible in terms of dimensions, but it's in another building. Whereas, obviously, the Crucible is a theatre, just in the centre of Sheffield, and for 50 weeks of the year, that's what it is. It's a very successful, well-regarded theatre. It's become a sporting venue because it, it, that's where it was taken. But, like you say, you couldn't, you couldn't re- replicate it because culturally it's not the same, is it? No, I, I, think, I think it would be very, very, very difficult. And the other thing with, with China is that if you took the World Championship there, they would have to offer an immense amount of money to uh, basically compensate for the loss of the British television contract because with an eight-hour time difference, if you played the final at night there, which you obviously would, it would be in the middle of the day here yeah, and... You know the viewing figures would be plummeting. You know, through through the, through the floor. Let's talk about embassy because, uh, of course, smoking now is, is frowned upon to say the least. But uh, back in the day, you know, it, they they poured a lot of money into the game, and they were very supportive sponsors. And they had there was this character Peter Dyke who, who, who was their sort of consultant uh, who, who worked for them, who kind of kept everyone in shape, didn't he, Clive? <laughs> very, very, very smart man. Mm. Sharp as a tack, business-wise, knew exactly what was right in terms of uh, uh, embassies' uh, involvement with, with snooker, how to sort of maximise exposure and all that. But also a, a very funny man. Mm. He, 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 very, very good socially, you know. Uh, so uh, he, he was the ideal front man for embassy. Mm. And the, uh, it's fitting in a way, the last embassy was won by Sean Murphy because it kind of prove that sort of life goes on I guess beyond you know making a big change and you were commentating on that last session when he when he beat Matthew Stevens and they had the, the parade of champions before and that must, must have been pretty special yeah uh, it, 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 when you see that many champions you, you, you realise how long you've been doing this <laughs> <laughs> Phil talk about I mean because you, you weren't a commentator during the World Championship, so you spent literally all day in the pressure, and there's a, that's a recipe for madness, unless you have a bit of a laugh, and there were a lot of characters in that pressure, weren't there? Oh, we had so many laughs, so many, I mean, of course, the World Championship, when it came, was normally, if there was a general election, the general election was coming up, and so we had quite a few politicians coming yeah. out, I know you had to show, um, I think it was William Hague, wasn't it? Yes. One, yeah, one point yeah. around there. It was me, William Hague. Rex Williams and Lord Archer. There's a quartet. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and I remember Jeff Hoon coming up on, on, on one occasion. And, of course, the former, I think he was the Labour Defence Minister, wasn't he? And he was shown around the press room. I met him and shook hands and all that kind of stuff. And then over in the other uh, portion of the room was John Dee, the former yes. Daily Telegraph uh, correspondent and, and a good friend of ours. We'd just been to China, and he got one of these really big furry Chairman Mao hats with a massive red star on the front. <laughs> <laughs> and he was introduced to Jeff Hoon, and 
the guy who was showing Jeff around said, uh, uh, Mr. Hoon, this is uh, John D from the Daily Telegraph. And he turned around with this massive red star on his front of his hat. <laughs> Jeff Hoon shook hands and he turned around. Well, he went, if the guy from the Daily Telegraph's wearing that, we should be okay. <laughs> that, was a, that was a great moment. Another time, of course, when I went into the arena to see um, Nick Clegg, Nick Clegg yeah. uh, give a, a pre-general election speech. Turn, turned out it was the, the general election where the Liberal Democrats went into uh, coalition with the Conservatives. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, Nick Clegg, you know, a Sheffield MP, he's going to be given a very warm yeah, reception here. Ovation. Oh, it, 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 was, it, wasn't, it wasn't warm, no. Uh, no. I mean, quite a few sort of celebrities have come. They all seem to sit in the press seats, even though they're not journalists, which, which kind of always, always rankled a bit. Yeah, well, I've sat next to uh, Stephen Fry, members of various boy bands who I didn't know. Yeah. I had to move for Westlife, and it wasn't even Westlife, it was one of Westlife and three of his pals. They said, oh, no, Westlife are coming, you're going to have to move. Westlife, dog's life. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, one of the nice guys that comes up on a regular basis uh, is Hugh, Ed, Hugh, um, Hugh Edwards, of course. Hugh Edwards, yeah. Hugh Edwards from, from BBC. Um, and he's a confirmed uh, John Higgins fan. Mm. Clive, you, uh, you were celebrated a few years ago, 500 days. Someone worked out for some reason that you'd spent 500 days of your life at the Crucible mm. and you got to go out into the arena and, and take, the, take the applause. What was that like? Very nice. Mm. Uh, nice to be recognised. Uh, of course, it's quite, uh, it gives you, gives you quite a shock when you realise you've spent more than a year of your life mm. in uh, a single place, mm. you know, albeit sort of split up year by year. But, mm. uh, yeah, it was very nice. And then inevitably, a few days later, you, you, you slipped in the bathroom and, and, oh. and, and had to miss a day. <laughs> well, 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 that, 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 was, that, was, that was terrible. Mm. Uh, but, but I seem to remember because you rang Phil, and, and even even then you, you you couldn't sort of keep away from the snooker aspect because you said you'd done a Hendry because of course Hendry famously broke his broke his elbow doing the same thing. Well, well, that, that's right. I I, bro I broke my my hip, mm. and uh, uh, that's why I've got a hip replacement. Yeah, yeah. Well, when Hendry broke the elbow, I actually very kindly because of uh, a member of Hendry's team ended up breaking the story on Radio Five because he he, he told me, and well, look, I'm not going to pull any wool over anyone's eyes. I'm a massive Hendry fan and I was devastated. I thought that was it. He was playing Dave Harold. He was 7-1 up in the last 16, but even 7-1 I'm thinking, well, he's not going to win with a broken arm and if he does, he ain't going to go any farther. And he came in, he was so ginger, gingerly queuing in the first frame of the day and he lost it. And I thought, oh no, this is terrible. What, how unfortunate. Next frame, he had 130 plus yeah. and then he went on to win the event. It was one of the great achievements, not just in snooker, in my opinion, but in sport. Mm. Fantastic, because he was definitely handicapped, Clive. Mm. Yeah, and particularly bridging, bridging over a ball, putting weight on the, uh, the, the, the arm that, that got the injury. Yeah. It, 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 was it was terrific, really, and it was very nice of him at the end. He, he avoided any possibility of... Uh, colluding in any suggestion that he'd beaten Jimmy White in the final with a broken arm. Mm, mm. People can't see this because we're not on a video, but Phil is, Phil is jealously guarding Chris Downer's Chris Malamonac, which is an incredible tone which celebrates the World Championship, actually pre-Crucible, but particularly the Crucible with all sorts of statistics. And it illustrates that nearly 200 players have played there. But some of them, Phil, you can tell virtually from the start of the match, basically, for whatever reason, that venue, they just cannot cut it there. The worst ever was 1993, and the reason for that was they played the qualifiers, God only knows why, in the September the year before. Nearer to the previous World Championship. Nearer to the previous World Championship at the Norbrook <coughs> Castle Hotel in Blackpool. And because it was towards the end of the, the summer when the qualifiers were played, because a lot of players were rusty, because these 
young guys had been playing a lot of uh, matches at the Norbrek. A lot of shock results occurred, and you got people getting to the Crucible who had never been there before and were never there again. And what happened was, by the end of the season, when everyone was in groove in terms of the top players, it was just one heavy defeat after the next year. Some extraordinary people have played at the Crucible, and as you say, you just knew... You just knew they weren't going to win. Yeah, because it's everyone's dream to play there, but because they're such long matches, it can very quickly turn into a nightmare. You go 4 0 down, and you can see them just sort of basically disappearing into their chair. And it's such a. It's, that's the other thing about the World Championship. It's such an awkward environment when you're sat next to the other player, really close to them. You don't get that at any other tournament. I, I think the one. I've seen heavier defeats in the Crucible. <coughs> Obviously, John Parrott defeated Eddie Charlton 10 0, the, the only whitewash there. Still. Uh, we've seen 10 ones, 13 ones, all that kind of stuff. But in terms of just shrinking and not being able to produce, because he was a good player, the one that always sticks in my mind, and I'm sure it does in yours as well, um, is Gary Ponting from Bristol when he played Willie Thorne that time. I think he was 10-2, and he was just so nervous. He was just so overawed mm. by the venue. That's the one that sticks in my mind as, as being a, a terrible one for a Crucible rookie. Mm. OK, well, we're going to wrap up shortly, but I'm going to put you both on the spot with two questions, OK? which I've not pre-warned you on. The first one is, for all the years at the Crucible, 40 years, a personal highlight. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a match, but it can be something that happened there. And the second one is going to be, and I, want one, I don't want a long, long list, I want one name, who's going to win it this year? So first of all, a personal highlight, Phil. Well, OK, the personal highlight for me is the brown that Stephen Hendry potted uh, to basically launch his 10-frame comeback against Jimmy White. He was 14-8 down, his bridge hand was horrible um, in the middle pocket. The only way he could possibly get on the blue was playing the brown off its spot at dead weight into the yellow bag. It was the greatest shot I've ever seen in my life, and it, not only was it the greatest single shot, it was what it led to. Um, that comeback, for me, was the greatest achievement of anybody at the Crucible because it wasn't just a, a tight match, it was the, the whole sort of environment around it, everybody, well not everybody, but the vast majority wanted Jimmy to win, and Hendry was just st so stubborn, the crowd were against him, he understood that, you know, White was the big favourite, and yet he won those ten frames and made century after century and played brilliantly. Clive? The 2003 semi-finals, the final session, when uh, Paul Hunter started it, leading 15-9, and Ken Doherty just clawed back and clawed back and beat him 17-16. For sustained tension, that was the match for me. OK. I think for me, it was literally just getting to commentate at the Crucible uh, for the first time. I did the final in 2013 when Ronnie beat Barry Hawkins, uh, which was a great match, but just to actually be doing it was, was just incredible. OK, and, and I want one name. Who's going to win it? And we're recording this in mar early March, so... Obviously, there's going to be tournaments running into the championship, but Phil, who's going to win it? Judd Trump. Okay, you're very, very definite about that, weren't you? I just think <laughs> when, he, when he plays his best, he's fantastic, and he's played a lot of really good matches this year where he's come up against opponents who've been extra special, and that's why he's lost. I think Trump, because he doesn't take very much out of himself mm. when he plays, he plays so aggressively and so freely that a, a, a whole succession of lengthy matches, he's not drained by it, not like you know former winners such as, say, Graham Dot or especially Peter Ebden. Mm. Well, I think Trump uh, uh, as well, because uh, he's got the game for, for long matches. He, he, uh, he can relax in the early stage of a long match and just 
play play his game mm. without worrying too much uh, about the result at that stage. Failing Trump, I just got half a feeling that O'Sullivan, who's had a, a patchy season, might just get it all together. Mm. I agree with what you say about Trump. The only thing against him, I think, is that he knows that he's been expected to win it for a long time, since he was be even before a professional. And he has that pressure that other people have had, Jimmy White famously, and others. We shall see. I personally think Mark Selby, you know, that there's no, I was, I was saying to Mark the other day, there's no curse of a second time winner. You know, the old crucible curse for the first time winner doesn't apply when he won it twice. He's at the top of the draw. And uh, it's noticeable he's won the two biggest ranking events of the season, the International Championship and the UK Championship. We shall see. I did say it was the last question. There's one more, actually, because last year it was announced that there's a new 10-year deal for Sheffield. Is it right that it stays at the Crucible? Absolutely no doubt in my mind. As I said before, you know, commercially it's not the right place for the game. Uh, they could make a ton more money elsewhere. I mean, we remember when it went out to tender all those years yeah. ago and Liverpool put in a fantastic uh, financial bid which would have helped the game in terms of uh, uh, monetary improvement. But that's the spiritual home of the Championship and I would hate to see it leave. The World Championship and the Crucible are synonymous. Mm. OK, well, well, we'll regather it then in 10 years' time to discuss 50 years. And, and it's good news for Chris Downer, because, of course, if, if it moved from the Crucible, the cru Crucible Almanac will become obsolete, basically. Well, the flying will lenders <laughs> have got a safety net. We're on the high wire. Our safety net, where we're in that commentary box, Dave, yeah. is the Crucible Almanac by Chris Downer. He's one of the great heroes of the game. Available he... from snooker scene. <laughs> <laughs> well said. OK, well, on that, on, that, uh, on that grossly commercial note, we'll, uh, we'll say goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.